Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And this week we do not have a sponsor, but we're going to remind you that you can join our Patreon. You can get a shout out. You can get some books. You can get an ad free version of the show. You can get access to our Discord. All sorts of good stuff. You can give us dinosaur requests. Yeah, that too. <laughs> but if you want to check out our rewards and select a reward that you would enjoy, then head over to patreon.com slash I know dino. In our 223rd episode this week, we have an interview with Thomas Hopp, who recently presented at SVP about brooding of dinosaur eggs by dinosaurs. And he's also the author of the series Dinosaur Wars. So we had a lot to talk about with him. We also have a bunch of dinosaur news, including a new dinosaur. I'm only covering one because it was a huge one that everyone was talking about. And it set me down a rabbit hole for a fun fact <laughs> that we'll get to at the end. As these things often do. Yes. We also have some news about some new events and a dinosaur hoax. Uh-oh. <laughs> yep. And we have dinosaur of the day, Notosaurus. An oldie but a goodie. Aren't they all? Yeah, but especially Notosaurus, because <laughs> it like named a whole group of dinosaurs, mm. but nobody really cares about Notosaurus. But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons, and this week we'd like to thank Kyle, Brendan Kavanov, the Tolbert family, Sean Tanagaki, Remy Rodriguez, Marcy, Rohan, Bradley, Bilal, Scully, Avery, Crispy, Cody, Joaquin, Jeb from Arkansas, Aiden James, and Albertosaurus. Thanks, everybody. We really appreciate all your support. And as Garrett mentioned earlier, if you want to join this growing awesome community, then check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino. Jumping into the news, our first story, as promised, is a new dinosaur. We still have a lot of other new dinosaurs to cover. I think we have at least three more. <laughs> they really piled up in the beginning of February. So this one was published in Communications Biology and written by Lindsay Zano and others. And thanks to Keegan for sharing it with us. It's a new tyrannosauroid. Oh, is that why everyone was talking about it? It is why, yes. <laughs> it's from the US too, which really cues comparisons to T-Rex because we don't know about that many tyrannosauroids from the US. And what makes this one especially important, it's not just like, oh, it's good for the news because they can talk about a tyrannosauroid. It actually is scientifically very important. And that's because in North America, there's a huge gap in the early Cretaceous in what we know about tyrannosauroids. But this one is about 15 million years younger than the oldest previous Cretaceous tyrannosauroid that we knew about. So it's starting to fill in some gaps in our knowledge. With this new tyrannosaur, it brings the number of known tyrannosaurs to at least 31. So it's not like tyrannosaur finds are super rare, but a lot of those recently have been coming up in Asia or they're from the late Cretaceous. So this is still technically from the late Cretaceous, but it's on the earlier side of the late Cretaceous because the Cretaceous is about 70 million years long. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why sometimes we say like latest Cretaceous because it's such a long period of time. So this dinosaur is named Morose Intrepidus, and Morose comes from, quote, Greek, the embodiment of impending doom, 
in reference to the establishment of the Cretaceous Tyrannosauroid lineage in North America, end quote. (laughs) (laughs) So they're saying like, "Uh uh-oh, here comes the big bad Tyrannosaur to North America. And then Intrepidus is kind of from the same sort of line of thinking. It's Latin for intrepid, and that's assuming that it's an early arrival from Asia. So it's like you have to be an intrepid explorer going out into this new continent, you know, new grounds to conquer. It's quite the dinosaur. Yeah, at least it has quite the name. But really, though, much like a lot of other early tyrannosaurs, this is not a huge, big, bone-crushing tyrannosaur. It's pretty small. And they really confirmed that when they found its complete right leg. And they also found some pieces of the foot, but that's what the holotype is. It's just like the one leg. But unfortunately, they didn't find a skull. They didn't find really any vertebra or arms or tail. (laughs) Lots of things that would be helpful to kind of learn about how tyrannosaurs were evolving. But the leg looks a lot like some Asian tyrannosaurs. So hopefully we can kind of fill in the gaps by just looking at some more complete Asian tyrannosaur finds. But based on that leg, you can tell that it was more of a quick and nimble sort of sub-apex predator type dinosaur. This wasn't the king of the food chain, not really as impending (laughs) doom like the name implies. That's more of like a, a premonition of what's to come, I suppose. So they expect that this guy was kind of in its niche, eating things, but not eating everything and certainly not, you know, crushing through bone with reckless abandoned <laughs> like T-Rex would. Reckless abandoned. Yeah. They did find some teeth nearby that they are assuming is from Morose, but the teeth are from the premaxilla, which is that very front teeth. And so even in Tyrannosaurus, they probably wouldn't have been huge. So I'm not sure exactly how much just finding premaxilla teeth can tell us about its diet because a lot of times the premaxilla teeth are kind of used for like cutting like they are in our mouth. They're not really necessarily the same function as teeth that you find farther back in the head. So yeah, I'm not really sure how much they can tell about its diet. They didn't say much about its diet in the paper, but they are definitely a little bit wider than you see on some other dinosaurs, especially of that size. They're not like real narrow little slicing teeth. They do have a little bit more girth to them, so they could probably bite through something a little tougher, I suppose. But they are more laterally compressed, meaning a little more narrow than later tyrannosaur teeth. So to me, they look kind of in between, not quite as bulky as a T-Rex, but not quite as you know, narrow as something like a troodontid or a dromaeosaur or one of those types of dinosaurs. The Goldilocks of teeth, is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it's a good thing. Maybe it meant it had a specific diet. I have no idea. They didn't say anything about it, so who knows? Or it could be a generalist tooth. I'm not sure. Mm. One interesting thing about the tooth, though, it, it does have like this weird deep groove on one side. So it's it's kind of like if you have a regular T-Rex tooth and then you kind of gouged a chunk out of the side of it. It's like weird. It's a weird look. I don't know why it has that. Hopefully some good like tooth paleontologists will dig into this and tell us what it means. We'll chew on it. (laughs) Yeah, good one. (laughs) They think that this specimen of morose is from a sub-adult. They found about six to seven lags in the bone. So they're saying it's at least six years old. They don't think, I guess, that any lags have been absorbed in sort of that hollow bone cavity because they didn't mention it. So sometimes they find the lags and they're like, but we think there were a few more in there. So we're going to bump up the age a little bit. This one they're saying, nah, it's probably about right. So six to seven years old. 
Fortunately, though, for sort of comparative purposes, they do think it was nearly full grown based on comparisons to some other similar dinosaurs, obviously from Asia. And when you put that all together, right in the abstract, they put what they thought it weighed. So they must have some confidence about this. They think that it was about 78 kilograms, which makes it about 172 pounds, which is a pretty big dinosaur. I mean, you know, it's definitely nowhere near T-Rex, which is like thousands of kilograms. <laughs> Still very formidable for a human. Yeah, for sure. I mean, 172 pounds, that's a large animal, especially for a carnivore. They didn't estimate its length, and I couldn't even do a little trick where I sometimes try to like scale it based on a scale bar because they were not drawn to scale. <laughs> <laughs> but based on its leg, which was about 1.2 meters or four feet long, I'm thinking... You know, if it's got a four foot leg, there's a little bit more with its back above that. And, you know, like the hips and everything, you can kind of imagine that its back would be significantly higher off the ground. And then it's got a typical S curved neck like you see in theropods. So it could get its head up a little higher. So I'm thinking roughly face to face with a human. It's kind of my approximation, depending on how tall the human is. That's my error margin of error on this estimate. So it's either face-to-face -face with Sabrina or me, depending on <laughs> I see. how big it was, which is terrifying. I mean, thinking about like a thing with these big sharp teeth looking at you right in the face. To me, that's almost scarier than something like a T-Rex because then it's so big. Maybe it won't see you. Yeah. It's like running from an elephant or something. You know, it's just like getting away from this big lumbering thing. Maybe you can hide inside something. Mm. Although T-Rex didn't really lumber. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. It depends who you ask, how right. fast they could run. But you could definitely hide inside something small. Mm. But when it's something around your size, to me, that's scarier, which is probably why in Jurassic Park they did like the velociraptor thing because then it can like chase them through a building. Mm -hmm. Whereas T-Rex, it's like at one point they could just like burst through a wall like the Kool-Aid man. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> to me, it's yeah a little bit less scary, a little more ridiculous. But anyway, back to Morose. So Morose was found at Suicide Hill in central Utah. Man, Utah is just the place to be for a lot of dinosaur discoveries. And they say, quote, the unexpectedly diminutive and highly cursorial ball plan of North America's earliest Cretaceous tyrannosauroids reveals an evolutionary strategy reliant on speed and small size during their prolonged stint as marginal predators, end quote. That makes sense. Yeah, I just thought it was a really interesting way to put it. Like for a long time, they were kind of relegated to the lower echelons. <laughs> right. And in order to survive, you got to be small and fast. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, when the chance arises, they bulked up and took over, you know, the Hell Creek at least. Mm -hmm. But it it's interesting too to me because since this is in Utah, you're talking about a pretty different ecosystem than you had in the Hell Creek because this is 30 million years older. It's from about 96 million years ago, whereas obviously the Hell Creek is 66 million years ago. And then obviously there's a lot of different prey around too. So figuring out just how it fit into that ecosystem would be really interesting. I haven't really heard about Suicide Hill before. I don't remember that popping up. It's a memorable name. It is. And I wonder just how many other dinosaurs we know from the area, because 96 million years ago isn't a time period we talk about much in North America. But it'd be really interesting to see if we could find out how this fit into the ecosystem. And then you kind of imagine like what made the big guy go extinct? <laughs> Did his prey also go extinct? 
did Tyrannosaurus come up with some better way to compete and just slowly squeeze it out? Mm -hmm. Or what exactly happened is just a fascinating piece of this puzzle that, you know, we can maybe start to get a better view of now. I hope so. I also want to clarify because I said pretty early on that it's about 15 million years older than a previous known earliest North American Tyrannosauroid. And so that was Lythronax, which was from about 80 million years ago and is also from Utah. It's obviously from a different part of Utah because otherwise it wouldn't be from such a different time period. But Utah is really shaping up. It's where we're seeing the Dromaeosaur evolution to some extent, where we're seeing the Tyrannosaur mm -hmm. <laughs> evolution. A lot of the Ceratopsian craziness was going on in Utah. It's a pretty interesting place to be. It was the place to be back in the day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe, but you know, it could just be that everywhere was the place to be and we just don't yeah, have a record true. of it. This is the place to get fossilized and then discovered in the 2000s. <laughs> That's very specific. <laughs> On our time scale. Yeah, for sure. I'm sure the dinosaurs planned it that way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Morose was trying to figure out how he got his name in the, in the books. Yeah. So moving on, Garrett mentioned we we're going to talk about an interesting dinosaur hoax. So recently in Ireland, the Irish Coast Guard was called to recover some T-Rex bones, but then they confirmed that these fossils were actually fake. And you can tell, I think, pretty easily based on the picture that they show. <laughs> and the fact that somebody just said, like, we just need the Coast Guard out here to... Pick up some fossils. Of T-Rex. Yeah. Which isn't known from the area at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, the picture shows this fully intact, quote unquote, skull near the shore. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's especially shady. Yeah. So... Anyway, there's not too many details yet, but the Irish Coast Guard tweeted about it and they said, quote, on further inspection, it was confirmed that it was a very impressive imitation, a Tyrannosaurus wreck, if you will. Hmm. <laughs> I appreciated that. So, yeah, no details. Not sure who did it or why, but I'm glad that they made sure the public knew it was a hoax. Yeah. So if you ever hear about a T-Rex that was found in Ireland. It didn't happen. Nope. <laughs> On April 11th, between 6 and 8 p.m., Dr. Matt Lamana, who's the Assistant Curator of Vertebrate Paleontology at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History, will be giving a talk called Diving for Dinosaurs, Cretaceous Fossils from Croatia, which sounds pretty cool. So in the 1990s, there were these early Cretaceous fossils that were found in the Adriatic Sea near Istria, Croatia. They found three dinosaur species and about 200 bones. And then last October, a team conducted what they're saying is the first systematic paleontological survey of the site. And it's one of the first underwater explorations for dinosaur fossils. Sounds like a good talk. We also got to interview Matt back in episode 155, in case anyone wants to hear that. And we talk about Antarctic dinosaurs with him. Yeah, I don't think we talked about this at all. We should talk to him again. Yeah. <laughs> but that's kind of funny because you were just talking about a hoax of dinosaur fossils underwater. And these are real dinosaur fossils underwater. Yep. Because it can happen. It has been known to. I mean, sea levels were different. Things get buried underwater as well as, you know, on land. So it's definitely something that happens. Just it's it's never in the form of, oh, look, there's a skull just resting perfectly excavated on the seafloor. It's never, unfortunately not that easy. Last October, a team conducted the first systematic paleontological survey of the site. In Pismo Beach, California, they had a grand reopening recently for Dinosaur Caves Park. I don't think I knew that existed, but there's a lot of different animal sculptures to climb. 
Some of them are dinosaurs. I think I saw an orca. So not all dinosaurs. <laughs> and then there's some dinosaur eggs you can hide in. So it's all just sculptures. There's no actual like paleontology going on. No, I think it's mostly for kids to play in. Gotcha. That's better anyway. You want the kids playing in a playground and not with the real fossils. That's true. In the UK, you can now buy chocolate dinosaurs in both Aldi and Marks and Spencer. This is leading up to Easter, which I think is only in a few weeks. I've lost track. Anyway, Aldi sells chocolate Danny the Dinosaurs, which uh, Danny the Dinosaur is a popular children's book. And then Marks and Spencer have these chocolate dinosaurs that come with white chocolate dino eggs. Hmm. But nobody likes white chocolate. But if, if you pretend they're dino eggs, maybe they taste better. I suppose. I would eat them, I think. <laughs> You'd eat the baby dinosaurs? Oh. Nah, just the egg. We'll pretend they're unfertilized. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Last, for those playing Jurassic World Alive, MetaHub posted a list of the best and worst dinosaurs based on the, I guess, 1.6 update. So the list is based on dinosaur stats and assumes that everything in the game is at level 26. And then they break down the dinosaurs by Tyrant, Apex, Alpha, Beta, Survivor, Scavenger, and Hatchling groups. So might be worth checking out if you're playing. And before we get into our interview, we don't have a sponsor, but we want to again remind you all that we have a Patreon and you may want to join it. <laughs> you can get a longer version of this upcoming interview because a lot of our interviews go on longer than we like to edit them down to for the show. But, you know, for those that are interested, it's nice to be able to share a longer form version and Patreon allows us to do that because you get a custom specialized podcast depending on what patreon level you're at yeah basically we can't help ourselves and we talk too much to the people <laughs> we interview because yeah. everybody's so interesting but apparently some people are interested in these longer interviews and if you're one of those people then you should definitely sign up for our patreon and of course there are lots of other rewards too if you're not interested in longer interviews you can get ad-free versions or lots of other rewards plus you reward us by joining our Patreon. So it's a win-win. So definitely check us out on patreon.com slash inodino. And now we're going to go into our interview with Thomas Hopp. We're here today with Dr. Thomas Hopp, who is a scientist, inventor, lecturer, and author. And he's written a number of short stories and novels, including the science fiction series Dinosaur Wars. So at SVP this past year, you and Mark Orson presented this poster about four-winged Paravian dinosaurs, and they may have used their hind limb feathers for brooding. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, what I should probably do is step it back. You know, when Mark and I started to develop this presentation, we looked at each other and went, wow, it's been 20 years <laughs> since we first suggested that feathers on, that the wings and feathers of birds came about because of brooding, not <laughs> hey, you know, maybe I can cover up my babies with my wings. No, it was trying to cover up babies that caused there to be wings and caused the shape of the feather, that fabulous, fanable cover that is on the wings of birds to this day. Mm -hmm. uh, so that 20 years ago, we published the first paper dealing with that concept. And uh, so here we were preparing for this 20, <laughs> we realized 20 years later, wow, you know, we, we like to be regular, you know, get right out there <laughs> with another paper. Uh, but but what what had happened, all, you know, you know, sort of the quick history then 
our concept was validated by fossils that have been found in, in Laoning and other places showing, you know, all these animals that couldn't fly. They, they, they have a fanable cover on their arms that you'd call a wing, but uh, clearly it's too small to fly with. Mm-hmm. And people, you know, are just going, that's for, for a couple of decades here going, well, maybe they waved them at each other or something, <laughs> you know. And, and Mark and I are going, you know, they needed to cover their babies before there was ever a feather, before there was ever a wing. They had to brood their babies somehow. And the, as, as all of this evolution, all of those animals found in lake bed sediments and stuff where you can really see these feathers, all of that makes perfect sense for covering nests. There's never been an example of it being something else. And so we've watched this develop. And, and, you know, about 10 years ago came out the first uh, suggestions in the literature, the first models of animals with two wings on their hind limbs. Mm -hmm. And the concept of the four-winged dinosaur arose. And Mark and I, you know, in like 10 seconds go, oh, great, covering (laughs) the rear quarter of the nest. Perfect. Absolutely. In fact, our first paper says we don't understand how these wing feathers could cover the rear quarter. So there's (laughs) got to be an explanation for that. And then after we said that, wrote it in the paper, they discovered, started discovering these four winged dinos. And we just went, "Eh, answers in. (laughs) And, and, And so then meanwhile, I don't blame people for their enthusiasms, but you know, people are going, all right, this must help us to figure out how these creatures were flapping around or gliding or doing all kinds of aerial maneuvers. And so now all we need to do is get a model for this this third and fourth wing. And and you've seen, you know, over years, I'm sure you guys have seen all that stuff where they show this glidey kind of looking creature going through the air with all arms and legs out. And the rear legs are all these cool, you know, <laughs> Uh, ailerons or whatever to uh to help them glide or whatever they're doing and mark and i just looked at that and said uh maybe you know why not (laughs) because we know what they're really using them for which is to brood with so yeah you know if they want to jump out of a tree and try that why not you know Mm -hmm. but that isn't the origin that's not the the reason for existence of those hind limb wings at least you know according to this presentation you're talking about at the SVP. Right. We put it all together and tried to show people who've been talking about gliding and four-wing maneuvering that really all you need to do is set this thing down on the nest. And again, this this our original concept here. We made some diagrams taking other people's examples of fossils and put it on a nest. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that basically was the concept, just to make some figures and images that show how these feathers that everybody's been talking about work just beautifully for covering the hind quarter, you know, the the back quarters of the eggs or the hatchlings that are in a nest. Yeah. I remember one of the main images is Microraptor. Yeah, we have him in there a couple of times over <laughs> Yeah. How'd you decide that was the one that was going to be your model? I would say probably the main reason there is just that there are so many Microraptor uh, fossils, you know, that uh, when, uh, you know, we didn't put all this 
data together. You know, it's people like uh, Chappie and Norell and uh, Xuxing and, you know, all the people that are digging these up or preparing them or, or, or writing them up in museum monographs. You know, they had done the hard work of making models of simply here's the creature. You know, mm-hmm. and and so then that's where we wanted to take our point of departure. Okay, we like the models of Microraptor because there are what uh, ten really good specimens described in the literature with feathers in, in the fossil. Mm-hmm. So so you have this wonderful you know detail on how the feathers are arranged, and so that that is. Probably, you know, that's really the only reason we we went so much with Microraptor. Uh, we did in, in that presentation put the Microraptor onto an Oviraptorid nest. You're cheating a little bit because mm-hmm. there there are no Microraptor nests, you know, so fossils. So uh, we had to do something. We didn't want to just make up a nest, you know. We wanted to try to stick to fossil evidence, and so the Microraptor, because of its well characterized feathers. And an oviraptorid nest because they that seems to be kind of a classic for theropod nests. They have that circle of eggs with the the one end pointing up towards the incubating adult. So we sort of combined oviraptorids for the high quality nest fossils uh, with the feather covering of uh, microraptor. That's really cool. I also really like how you know. A lot of people talk about ground up versus trees down, mm-hmm. and you have kind of a third option, which is like insulation first. And it yeah. it kind of works with the whole ontogeny of birds too, because you know baby birds all they have feathers first for insulation, and then later in life they end up getting the feathers that are more complex for flight. And I I like how that kind of all fits together in that sort of scheme of things. Yeah, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, right? <laughs> At least once in a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what about the idea that feathers could be for something else, like display purposes or, or things like that? Is that all just, it's secondary? Like, oh, that that's nice to have? Well, let me give the long answer first. Okay. <laughs> it is it is clear that paleontologists are sexually obsessed <laughs> and uh, can't quit thinking about sex and and so they keep coming up with theories that have to do with you know hey baby you know waving <laughs> feathers around look at my lovely feathers aren't you excited so <laughs> i consider that to be more of a human uh condition than a dinosaur or bird condition so you know the short answer is yeah it's a secondary use yep. in our view you know the the, the signaling or uh social interactions. I wouldn't want to deny such things. You know, as soon as an animal's got some cool thing, it's kind of strutted stuff, you know. So <laughs> I, I don't have any problem. But when people imply that wings evolved for showing off, you know, or so I go, no, 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 no. That's that's backwards. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, uh, uh, for instance, uh, you could have the most humdrum and ugly critter but if it can't brood its babies successfully, there's a problem. Sure. You know? So brooding, you know, as, as Mark and I often say, brooding came first. Mm-hmm. And that's obvious. You know, but people seem to need to be told that. Not, you know, partying came first and we're all waving our stuff around. <laughs> so since you 
originated the idea about 20 years ago, and then with the new SVP poster, was there a lot that changed in the 20 years? It sounds like the main thing was finding the hind limb feathers. Yeah, yeah, that is absolute. I mean, that's really the uh, stimulus for us to go ahead and make this poster because there was such lovely information about the feathers. I would say that the, the data has just accumulated. You know, there are several different uh, oviraptorid creatures that they may not have feathers known on their legs, but they have uh, arm feathers or wing feathers that are of an intermediate length where it's real clear that there were creatures that just could not possibly fly with those things that have highly evolved arrangements of long feathers on their arms. And again, that makes perfect sense to Mark and I. We went around, Mark and I went around and scoured the literature, uh, ornithology primarily, and got just incredible pictures of birds doing amazing things with their their feathers on behalf of their babies. Hmm. There's one of a peregrine falcon that's got these really big downy nestlings, and it's the picture was taken in a rainstorm. And this poor adult, it's got its arms out as big as it can get them around these two babies <laughs> that are underneath its wings. You know, the author of that particular paper that we took that figure from said. The babies will die in a rainstorm from hypothermia if they're not covered like this. Wow. So the parent becomes an umbrella. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And another one was in Africa. There was, it had a picture of this eagle on a classic eagle's, eagle's nest, you know, a bowl of uh, branches all woven together. And it's way up high and it's in the African sun and it's got its wing feathers spread straight out and it's standing on the rim of the nest. And it's covering its babies that are underneath it with a shade made of its wing feathers. Wow. Wow. And let's see, what else? There's a mother uh, mallard, and she's got a big brood of babies under her wings. And we use that as a, an anatomical discussion of the postures that, you know, why, why the folding arm of the bird actually evolved to fold, not in the flight stroke, but it folds to get those big, long brooding feathers up off the ground. And you see this mother mallard, and she's got her babies all huddled underneath, and she's got her wing feathers right back there, clutching the whole bunch of them, hmm. with these feathers. And you see their little feet and little rear ends <laughs> sticking up. <laughs> kind of uh, segueing into your series Dinosaur Wars, because mm -hmm. I get the feeling that the craw, which is the the half reptile, half bird right. species, yeah, in the in the series, brooding, right? And the it sounds like the way you describe how they look really fits this narrative as well. So, yeah, yeah. There's, there's an obvious connection there, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know whether my fiction informs my fact or the other way around, <laughs> maybe a little bit of both. The, the craw, that's spelled K-R-A, are based upon, you know, when I, when I needed to create a human-sized intelligent theropod to be the, you know, space-faring creatures that return to the Earth, I was looking into the different feathered dinosaurs and decided that somewhere between Truodon and Archaeopteryx would be about the right creature uh, to evolve these intelligent ones from. I'm probably not the first that has gone in the Truodon zone to come up with a creature that might develop intelligence. Mm -hmm. 
but at that time, and this would have been in the late 90s, as I was drafting the first drafts of the novel, uh, which came out in 2000, I, I was looking at that scientific literature and trying to decide what these creatures would be like. And so fiction and fact fed back and forth between each other and things like how these fictional creatures would brood their young were in my thinking, and they show up in uh, several of the books. Mm -hmm. And that most definitely informed my factual discussion of fossils and brooding that we've been just talking about. Cool. I think you also have a, a mating dance in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you just, it, it really is hard to not uh, see these things when you're out looking through scientific literature. Or, you know, you watch a lot of this on TV, right? You get a nice uh, image of whatever, some flamingos out there flapping their wings and strutting <laughs> around the way they do. <laughs> and yeah, that, that colors my thinking about how the craw, you know, the, Gar, who's the leader of the good guy faction of these creatures, and Ghana, his mate, do a mating dance, I think once or twice, or maybe a couple of times in different books. Mm -hmm. It's kind of fun to consider what an intelligent bird-like creature would even think of what it was doing as it went through the stereotypical movements, head bobbing and strutting and <laughs> all that stuff that birds are, are, you see it all the time, you know, pigeons or whatever, you see that kind of stuff going on. Uh, so I, I try to make my dinosaurs very birdy, whether they are a theropod, which is kind of the easy one, mm -hmm. or even a triceratops. That's quite a beaky creature, you know. True, <laughs> true. You've also got um, Rufus, which is the, is it Edmontosaurus? It's a parasaurolophus. Oh, parasaurolophus. All right. And that one's very, well, it does a lot of parental care. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, let, let me back up and just say that the main protagonists in the whole Dinosaur Wars series are uh, two young people. Chase Armstrong is a, a wolf reintroduction biologist. And in this surprise event, dinosaurs are reintroduced to Yellowstone. <laughs> as well. So he's kind of got to deal with that. And he had uh, just uh, run across this lovely young lady who was a rancher's daughter running cattle near Yellowstone. And it turns out that the 66 million year old buried city of the Craw is on her father's ranch. So she's, <laughs> she's kind of the Princess Leia of this story because, you know, she's on the spot. She's, she's where it's at. Yeah. Well, that reminds me, one of the descriptions reads, Star Wars meets Jurassic Park as dinosaurs return to Earth from space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fun. It's, I have a lot of fun writing. But, but getting back to the Parasaurolophuses, or Parasaurolophuses, I know it, everybody seems to have a different pronunciation of just about every dinosaur name. I'm, oh, I guess I'm, I'm stuck in my old patterns, you know. Uh, <laughs> anyway, in... In each story of the Dinosaur Wars series, whether it's one of the short stories or a novel, I always like to have one or several examples of my original thinking on something interesting that might have been true about dinosaurs. You know, one thing I like to do, because I'm not formally a paleontologist, I, I, I carry a PhD in biochemistry, but I'm not formally trained as a uh, 
paleontologist. Real paleontologists have things they can do, like play with fossils that I don't get to do. But I can do some things they can't do. And an example in the Dinosaur Wars series is a scene where the parasaural offices demonstrate boxing mm, skills. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they punch out a Tyrannosaurus. And I don't just do that for the excitement in the story. I do it, <laughs> to me, as really a scientific exercise. I can look at the published uh, skeletal structures of those creatures. You know, in Parasaural Office is one where they have some pretty nice uh, fossil material. And those things have some fairly solid, long forelimbs. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's quite reasonable to suggest that like a kangaroo, they might just lash out with those. And so I wrote a scene where uh, Chase Armstrong and Kit Daniels are being chased by a hungry T-Rex. And it crosses, they, they cross the nesting territory of the parasaural offices who come out swinging <laughs> and punch out the Tyrannosaurus Rex. I love that. I love it when the, the large herbivores that are usually just seen as like... Prey. Yeah, just straight up prey actually get their due and can do some damage. Yeah, I have fun doing it. And I got, I got some, let's see what's coming up. So Stegosaurus, of course... At the end of the Cretaceous, there shouldn't be any stegosaurs, but hey, this is fiction. (laughs) (laughs) And I I have a feeling, actually, they might just find some, because every time they turn up some Chinese wurrasaurus or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. it seems like they're getting later and later. They're well into the Cretaceous with those Mm -hmm. creatures. And it's pretty stegosaurian. So I thought, oh, what the heck? I'll just say there was a relict population (laughs) still left. (laughs) So I can do a story about Stegosaurus. And then Kylosaurus is coming up. And uh, what else? I don't know. I got a few other ideas cooking. Yes. How long do you plan to do the series for? Ever. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Till I drop. Till I fossilize. (laughs) That's how we feel about the podcast, too. (laughs) Yeah. It's wonderful. I've I've looked at some episodes recently or listened to, and it's great. Thank Thank you. So where is the best place for people if they wanted to find out more about you and your work? Uh, Yeah, well, I have a a website. It's primarily for my fiction author work, but it has a bit about my scientific career as well. And the site is thomashop.com. That's pretty easy with a hyphen. And then the best way to really tie into what's going on is slash blog because I have been blogging for years. I don't do it too frequently, but I'll usually put the latest news of book releases or, you know, my scientific work, if I should happen to write it about, you know, sixth wing brooding dinosaurs or something, I'll, I'll have announcements on that blog. And as I say, you can also get some of my uh, scientific work. I've done a lot of cloning of the human genome and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Well, you also write other... Like any good dinosaur fan, you know, I love volcanoes and earthquakes. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, the two most recent books are uh, Rainier Erupts. So <laughs> the local <laughs> volcano here in Seattle goes off and makes a mess of things in that story. That's, that <laughs> came out a couple of years ago. And I have been working feverishly on a book called The Great Seattle Earthquake. Oh, mm. 
Yeah, yeah that's pretty exciting because I'm, again, I'm following all kinds of interesting real science developments. Mm -hmm. They have just discovered that this, the San Andreas Fault uh, is nothing special. There's a thing called the Seattle Fault, and it runs from east to west directly under the city, and it's loaded up and ready to go. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks so much, Thomas. As you know, a big fan of the series Dinosaur Wars, plus it's always great to talk about cool things that dinosaurs did, like brooding. Yeah, it's really interesting. I really like the different theories about why feathers evolved, because they're such an awesome and almost like universally useful feature. So thinking about which evolutionary pressure was the strongest to make them pop up in the first place, it's always fascinating. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Notosaurus, which was a request from Marcos and Dinosaur 4602. So thanks. As a quick reminder, if you're a patron, then you can request a dinosaur of the day from us and we will get to it as soon as we can. Otherwise, we're just going to keep continuing with our current list, but we unfortunately can only add to it if you're a patron. Notosaurus was an ankylosaur that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now North America, and it was an herbivore. It's estimated to be about 13 to 20 feet or 4 to 6 meters long, and it had bony plates on the top of its body, and it may have had spikes on the side of its body. These bony plates were like bands alternating between narrow and wide bands over the ribs, and the wider bands were also covered in bony knobs, so very, very protected. <laughs> it had a short neck and a long, stiff tail, but no club. Not like an ankylosaur. Yeah, and you probably know that if you've heard us talk about ankylosaurs versus notosaurs, because that's really the defining difference most of the time. Is ankylosaurs of the club, notosaurs don't. Yeah. Notosaurus had a small narrow head and a pointed snout, small teeth and powerful jaws, and it had five toes on each foot and powerful forelimbs. It was named in 1889 by Othniel Charles Marsh in a very brief description, which happened a lot with Marsh and Cope <laughs> back in those days. It's all about quantity over quality. <laughs> yeah. Richard Swanlow gave a more detailed description of Notosaurus in 1921, and Lull described also the flat scutes, the spines, and the plates, though he did not illustrate them. And then Carpenter and Kirkland revisited Lull's description in 1998. In 2015, a four-year-old boy at the time, Wiley Bryce, found what's thought to be a notosaurus fossil in Mansfield, Texas. He and his father, Tim, were looking around behind a shopping center, and at first they thought it was a turtle fossil. Then they reached out to Southern Methodist University and worked with them to excavate the area. Pretty cool, Wiley. Yeah. The type species is Notosaurus textilis, and the name means knobbed lizard, you might have guessed, based on all the knobs. At least the notosaurus part does. Yeah. The species name refers to the texture near the head. There's these small ossifications in quadrangular form that are arranged in rows. And Marsh said, quote, the external surface is peculiarly marked by a texture that appears interwoven like a coarse cloth. This has suggested the species name, end quote. Good job, Marsh. <laughs> Attaboy. <laughs> Notosaurus is the type genus for the notosaurid group, and there are two groups in Ankylosauria. There's notosaurids and ankylosaurids. Notosaurids are usually more primitive, and they don't have tail clubs, as Garrett mentioned. Generally, too, the skulls are not as short or broad as ankylosaurids, and the skulls were not covered in scutes. 
You can see Notosaurus in the Illustrated Encyclopedia of Dinosaurs, aka Normanpedia, which was illustrated by John Sibick in 1889. Wow. Yeah. And you can also see Notosaurus in the Land Before Time series. It appears in the third movie, if you get that far, as a character <laughs> named Nod. Yeah. There was an ankylosaur in the first movie, right? Was it Ruder? I think it's Ruder. I can't remember what Ruder is. He's ankylosaur-ish. Ish, yeah. <laughs> Don't remember his tail, just remember his deep voice. Yeah. <laughs> and you can also see Notosaurus in the game Jurassic World Evolution. You can unlock it via the Hammond Foundation when you complete the Science Division's mission on Isla, Iowa, Tacaño. And the model is based on Boreal Pelta. And as promised, our fun fact of the day is a little bit more about Moros Intrepidus because there's just so much to talk about with this dinosaur. So... Specifically, what I was wondering is how fast would Tyrannosaurus have put on mass between Morose Intrepidus and Tyrannosaurus Rex, assuming that, you know, Morose Intrepidus is a direct ancestor of T Rex or at least a similarly sized Tyrannosaur was? I could see how this turned into a rabbit hole. Yeah, because you got to do math. I'd like the math rabbit holes. So I want to state all my assumptions up front because this is definitely a very rough estimate. But we do know that Morose Intrepidus was around about 96 million years ago and that T-Rex was around about 66 million years ago. So that gives you 30 million years to grow. And that's really what made me start thinking about this is everybody talks about T-Rex as this rapid growth, but over 30 million years, how rapid is the growth really? <laughs> it doesn't seem like it would be that rapid. So to quantify it, M. Intrepidus is about 78 kilograms or 172 pounds. And T-Rex is about 6,000 kilograms or 13,200 pounds. So yeah, a lot bigger. And if you break that down, you get about 200 kilograms of increasing mass per million years or 440 pounds per million years. Assuming that each mating Tyrannosaur lives for 20 years and there's a linear growth. So I'm basically assuming like a 20-year generation of tyrannosaurs, it's pretty conservative because we think they reached sexual maturity a little bit before that, but you know, they might've had multiple generations and all that kind of stuff. And I want to be on the conservative side, but the linear growth is a much bigger assumption because, you know, we have no idea. We have like the end points. <laughs> they could have stayed small for another 10, 20 million years and then ramped up just at the end. But these are the puzzle pieces we have. So that's what I'm going to work with. But if you do that math, assuming the 20-year generation, you get an average increase in size of just 4 grams per generation or 0.14 ounces per generation. So that means each tyrannosaur, when it laid its baby, would be 4 grams heavier as an adult than it is, hmm. which is the same as just like taping two dimes to its sides. <laughs> so very, very small amount of mass increase. Doesn't seem like a huge increase over time. I mean, like just... In the U.S. versus growing up in Asia, since we have more protein availability here, you have kids that often weigh much more than their parents do, like on the order of pounds. So this four grams is like very little compared with just a difference you can have in diet. But obviously you multiply that by 30 million years, you get a big effect. So I wanted to compare that to another animal to see, well, is this a lot compared to another massive animal that we all think about? So I picked the blue whale because the blue whale is, everybody knows, the most massive animal that has ever lived. And we have good data about its size. 
So it's it's an ideal candidate. And then for the ancestor to the blue whale, I picked Myocetus. So I know this isn't about dinosaurs, but a quick whale aside, <laughs> they're fascinating because whales are mammals and mammals evolved on land, which means that a mammal we now know evolved from sort of this dog-shaped animal into a whale. <laughs> and it's one of the coolest evolutionary pathways that we've really ever seen. And it's such an amazing example of how like, yeah, a fish evolved into an amphibian, evolved into a tetrapod, and then actually a subgroup of those evolved back into the ocean. It's just amazing. But I digress. So Myocetus was around about 47 million years ago, and it's one of the earliest whales. It still basically has four limbs with fingers and toes, but they're webbed and it's sort of whale shaped. <laughs> so in the 47 million years between like whale-ish thing that still has four limbs, we got from that to a blue whale in 47 million years. And Myocetus only weighed 335 kilograms, whereas a blue whale on average weighs about 130,000 kilograms. They can go all the way up to, I think, 180,000 kilograms, something insane. I'm going to not state all my assumptions because nobody cares. But when you combine this with a longer lifespan, you get an average of about 140 grams or a third of a pound per generation for 47 million years. Wow. So that's like two orders of magnitude more growth than you get with a T-Rex. So yeah, I, don't, I, I would hedge the T-Rex did not evolve to a massive size that quickly, at least with what we have now as information compared to something like a whale. <laughs> Just wait, though, until we find that one weird tyrannosauroid. Yeah, <laughs> we find like this little tiny one that we know is a T-Rex ancestor and it's like five million years younger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's true. It's definitely possible. And it's obviously different being in the water versus being on land. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's not, it's not the thing that T-Rex should be known for is rapid growth is all I'm saying. Yeah, it's already known for a lot of things. For sure. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And you can also join our community on Patreon, patreon.com slash inodino, to get some cool rewards and join our Discord group, all that good stuff. We're also on social media and YouTube. Just look for at inodino basically everywhere. We're there. <laughs> Thanks for listening. And until next time. Good day.